0: us pray and we'll ask god for his help heavenly father as we think about this passage we pray you give us hearts uh, willing to think wisely and obediently and we pray heavenly father you help us to put into practice what we learn from your word and we pray it in jesus name amen have you ever heard the term delayed gratification uh, delayed gratification let me give you the definition from wikipedia the source of all knowledge Delayed gratification describes the process that the subject undergoes when the subject resists the temptation of an immediate reward in preference for a later reward. Generally, delayed gratification is associated with resisting a smaller but more immediate reward in order to receive a larger or more enduring reward later. The most famous experiment about delayed gratification was conducted in the 1960s and 70s at Stanford University by a man called Walter Michelle. Uh, let me quote again from Wikipedia. <laughs> Michelle and his colleagues were interested in strategies that preschool children used to resist temptation. They presented four year olds with a marshmallow and told the children that they had two options. One, Ring a bell at any point to summon the experimenter and eat the marshmallow. Or two, wait until the experimenter returned, about 15 minutes later, and earn two marshmallows. The message was, small reward now, bigger reward later. Some children broke down and ate the marshmallow, whereas others were able to delay gratification and earn the coveted two marshmallows. The most interesting thing about the experiment was this. Uh, they interviewed those same children, the four years old when they did the experiment, they interviewed those same children when they were teenagers and again when they were adults. And the differences between the children who were able to wait for the two marshmallows and the two who weren't are quite amazing. Let me quote again. The children who waited longer, when re-evaluated as teenagers and adults, demonstrated a striking array of advantages over their peers. As teenagers, they had higher SAT scores, social competence, self-assuredness and self-worth, and were rated by their parents as more mature, better able to cope with stress and more likely to plan ahead and more likely to use reason. They were less likely to have conduct disorders or high levels of impulsivity, aggressiveness and hyperactivity. As adults, the higher-delayers were less likely to have drug problems or other addictive behaviours, get divorced, or be overweight. Apparently, it is one of the most wise and useful disciplines to learn in life: delay gratification, short-term pain for long-term gain. Okay, we've come to the last of our studies in Paul's first letter to Timothy. And uh, Paul starts off this last section by talking about people in the churches who are financially rich. He tells Timothy to give some commands to these rich people. The first command is that they mustn't let their wealth make them arrogant. Uh, The word literally means to think highly of yourself, to think you're better than other people. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. Have a look with me. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Second command? Second command is that rich people mustn't put their hope in wealth. and They mustn't look to their money to be their security. They mustn't fall for the lie that their money and their stuff will fix their lives now. And they certainly mustn't think that they can rely on their money or their stuff to help them in the next life. Why? because it's so uncertain it's like using a a thin twig for a walking stick if you lean on it it will fail you still in verse 17. command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain don't be arrogant don't put your hope in wealth instead positively timothy is to command rich people to put their hope in god Uh, to rely on God for this life and the next, to find their security, their peace, their identity, their hope, their purpose in God. And notice how God is described. He's the God who generously gives us everything we have. He's the one who gave it. Generously gives us everything we have to enjoy. Verse 17 again. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Hope in God. Uh, Also, Timothy is to call on the rich to be generous and godly, to do good and to use their money to do good. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And then Paul tells what the result will be if rich people use their money to do good. Let me put it this way. They might not enjoy their marshmallow here on earth, but there will be two big marshmallows in heaven. (laughs) Do you get what I mean? If we invest in eternal things here, expressing our love for Jesus, helping others to know him, there will be eternal reward. Verse 19... In this way, that is being rich in good deeds, being generous, willing to share, in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That's not this life. Paul finishes the letter by calling on Timothy to guard the message about Jesus. Make sure it doesn't get changed or distorted. He warns him again, don't get caught up with the false teachers. They're eternally dangerous. Verse 20, Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what's falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. And then Paul finishes with a greeting. Notice it's a prayer that God's grace, not God's law... But, but but God's grace, his free gift of salvation through Jesus, will be with all of the churches in Ephesus. The end of verse 21. Grace be with you all. Okay, congratulations. You've made it to the end of 1 Timothy. Uh, can you see what's here in this passage? Timothy is to give commands to the rich people in the churches. What are the commands? Don't be arrogant or put your hope in wealth. Instead, rely on God. And use your life and your wealth to generously do good in the service of Jesus. And then Paul finishes by calling on Timothy again to steer clear of the false teachers and stick with Jesus. Okay, that's what the passage means. Now, how do we apply it to ourselves? First thing to say is this You are rich. Almost certainly. You you sitting here today are rich. In terms of history, in terms of the world, you are very, very rich. Recent statistics say that the median annual household income in the world today is, can you guess? The median annual household income in the world today is $11,000. That's what the median family in the world earns in a year, $11,000. How does that compare with your combined family income? Is it Uh, one-fifth? One-tenth? Even less? Remember, this is not comparing yourself with poor people. Uh, The poorest billion people live on less than a dollar a day. Now, this is comparing yourself with average people in the world. Uh, Maybe you don't feel rich, but you almost certainly are. And that means God's commands here are for you. They are directed at you. God wants you to put this into practice in your life. This is directly applicable to you. So what does God say to you? First, don't be arrogant. The fact is, the vast majority of the things that have enabled you to be as rich as you are have nothing to do with you. The country and place you were born in, the kind of parents you have, your health and genetic makeup, the peace, security, and stability of your upbringing, your access to education. You cannot take credit for any of these things. They don't make you better than anyone else. The, the, the reason that you are rich is not because you are better than other people, the reason you are rich is because God has been very kind to you. Being rich can make us arrogant. I think it often does. We can easily think that we are better or smarter or more hardworking than people who are poor. The problem is we're not just wrong, our arrogance is not just misplaced, we are actually dishonouring the God who has given us everything we have and taking credit for what he has given us. Friends, don't be arrogant. Second, or was the second thing Paul told Timothy to tell rich people? Second, don't put your hope in wealth. You brought nothing into this world and you can take nothing out. Within the next few short years, you will lose every cent that you have. Within the next few short years, everything that you have on earth, you will have to give up. You will lose All of it. Money will not fix your life, and money certainly will not fix your eternity. If you are relying on your money, if you are finding your security or your identity in money, God says that you are a fool. It will fail you. Don't be arrogant, don't rely on money. Thirdly, third point, do rely on God. Trust in Jesus and in his magnificent free gift to you. Trust him for your joy and peace and identity and hope in this life and trust him for your hope in the next life. And, re- and remember who God is. He's not some stingy miser, no, no, no. He is the God who richly provides you with everything for your enjoyment. It's like what we read back in chapter 4, isn't it? Everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's it's received with thanksgiving. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the good things God gives us here in in life. That's why he gives them to us. But this life is not all there is. In fact, this isn't even truly life. There is a life that is truly life And so fourth and final point of application, point four, be generous. Use your life and your money generously to do good in the service of Jesus. And know this, if you do that, what you do for Jesus will have eternal reward. When you think about it, it's all about delayed gratification, isn't it? I mean, it requires faith. You've got to believe there is a life that is truly life. But I take it we do believe that. And so it's a question of delayed gratification. You can enjoy your money now. And that's fine. God has richly provided you with everything for your enjoyment. Eat your marshmallow. Cook it on the fire and eat it. It's all yours. Enjoy. But listen to this. God is actually giving you the opportunity to enjoy your money more in an eternal future. He's giving you the opportunity to lay up treasure as a firm foundation for the coming age. Let me give you a concrete example. Sometimes my boys and I like to go down Willoughby Road. On Willoughby Road, there's a piano shop and there's a Porsche dealership. The other day we stopped and had a look, we saw a lovely grand piano for only a quarter of a million dollars <laughs> and we saw a cool Porsche for a quarter of a million dollars. So imagine God gave us half a million dollars to spend. We could buy the piano and it would sound amazing in our house, we would have so much pleasure out of it. And with half a million dollars we could also buy the Porsche as well. Again I'm sure it would be heaps of fun. We'd love the piano and the Porsche, they're not going to last and they're not going to fix our lives, despite the fact that they feel like they'll fix our lives, but, but we will get real pleasure out of them. If that's the way we want to spend our money, it's fine. It's our money. We certainly shouldn't feel guilty or upset about it. I mean, that would be really stupid. That way you don't get to enjoy your money now or in eternity. You buy it and you feel guilty about it. If you're going to buy it, Go hard, enjoy, all right? God richly gave us the money for our enjoyment. If that's how we choose to enjoy the money God gives us, it's our prerogative, it's our money. You stay out of it, don't judge us. We should enjoy with thanks to God and God, loving Father that he is, will say, you're welcome, enjoy. But the thing is this, there's a way we can enjoy our money more. A way we can enjoy our money better and longer. Imagine instead we gave the money to missionaries. For example, for no particular purpose today. (laughs) The missionaries share the gospel with people. Some of those people become Christians, like James and Christine. It's not easy to give money in this way. There will be short-term pain, no piano or Porsche for the reeds. But if we give our money in this way, there will be greater and more lasting enjoyment, Uh, some enjoyment now as we rejoice in playing our part in what God is doing in this world. But more than that, in the future, there will be even more enjoyment. When we enter heaven, there will be people in heaven because of our money, eternal people, eternally thankful to us. That'll be really nice. And God will be pleased that we used our money that he gave us with faith and with love. It's not that God needs us to do it. He will have the people he chooses in heaven with or without us. But if that's how we spend our money, the fact is it was with us. It was with us we joined with god in his eternal saving purposes of bringing in his elect god gave us the extraordinary privilege of being part of his eternal joy in saving his people jesus for the joy set before him endured the cross we can be part of that same joy by giving friends here's how it is giving your money in the service of jesus is a wiser and better investment it's a way to enjoy your money longer and more. It just takes one thing. Just one thing. The ability to delay your gratification. One marshmallow now or two then. All right. I want to spend the rest of our time together giving you some specific investment advice. I want to talk about ways that you can invest your money in the work of our church. I'm not saying our church is the only way to spend your money generously for the gospel. There are many ways. But the work of our church is, I trust, having eternal implications. And if you're a part of this church, it is your work in a special way. Now I should say, the amount that you give to our church will make no difference to my personal income. I don't get paid more if the church gives more. Uh, there is plenty that our church could do with a bigger budget. Uh, as a staff team, we were sitting down the other day and we could easily spend a couple of hundred thousand dollars more each year and that's not even talking about property, um, but it's not going to be increasing my pay if you give more. Okay, I'm not telling you this out of self-interest, that this is information for you to think about in the light of God's commands to you here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Okay. I'll start with some statistics about our current giving. Uh, We don't know uh, who gives what through the collection bags. We can't monitor that. Uh, But nowadays, the vast majority, uh, something like 85% of our income, uh, comes online through the bank account. And we don't publish anyone's giving online. I don't personally know uh, what anybody gives. You don't have to worry about any of that. Uh, I personally um, uh, don't know specifically how much any person or family gives. But with online giving, we can derive some statistics Uh, So here are some figures from our treasurer. Uh, There are 107 people or families who give regularly to our church online, 107. Uh, The top three of those givers last year gave 19% of our total giving. Three families gave 19%. It's about $100,000. The top five givers gave 26% of our church's income. Uh, The top 10, 38%. Uh, 50% of our entire church's income was given by 16 givers. Uh, 75% by our top 34 givers. I don't know how many units there are, a couple of hundred at least. Uh, 75% came from 34 givers. Uh, And the median giver last year, the median, right in the middle, giver, I gave $1,430 last year That's the median giver of our church, $1,430. Now, according to the 2016 census, the median annual family income on the North Shore is around $150,000. $150,000. So, put it all together, what does it mean? It means that our church is like most churches. A small number of people give generously, Uh, while the majority of us give around about 1% or less of our income. Uh, The majority of us, uh, we are thoroughly enjoying the money that God gives us here and now. And we're investing just a tiny proportion in eternal things. All right. Well, what then if you've been challenged... This morning by God's word to invest your money more wisely? What, what if you've seen the value of delayed gratification? What if you're one of those people who thinks, how foolish that I would give 1% or less of my income for the life that is truly life? What if you're thinking that, that you should invest more in the life that is truly life? Well then let me say a few things first, uh, you will never get seriously generous unless you plan. Uh, If you think you can be generous by checking what is in your wallet when the collection bag comes past, you're kidding yourself. Uh, I should say that is one of the reasons we're getting rid of the collection bags when we go into our new building. Uh, I not only find it thoroughly unfriendly to visitors, I also reckon it encourages bad giving habits. It is better for you Not in church, fumbling in your wallet, but at home, thinking and praying with your family, plan to give deliberately. Preferably online, that makes life so much easier for everybody, although in the new building there'll be a safe box you can put your money in. Okay, let's get get down to specifics. How much money should you plan to give? How much money should you plan to give? Answer from the Bible? It's completely up to you. Give whatever you want to whatever you want. Give as much as you want to whatever you want. The Bible doesn't say, and I'm not going to give you rules where the Bible doesn't. But a number of people have asked me for more specific guidance. So for what it's worth, I will tell you now how the Reed family plan to give. I'm not going to give you actual figures, but in case you're interested and a number of people have expressed interest, I'm going to tell you how we plan to give. All right. Uh, What I do at the beginning of each year, uh, I calculate, I'm not going to give you actual figures, but I'll I'll give you how we plan. Uh, I calculate our income. So let's imagine, it's a happy dream, but let's imagine that the reeds have a combined income of $170,000 per year. Uh, That's not our actual income. Let's assume it, as you'll see in a second, it makes it easy to calculate. Let's assume $170,000 a year. Okay, I then calculate 10%. Now, I know there is no New Testament command to give 10% of your income to the church. Uh, That's the figure I choose. Why? Uh, Because there's some Old Testament background to the concept and because at this point in our lives with four dependent children, I I find that 10% is painful but affordable. Uh, It it hurts, um, but but it's not going to send us broke. So we choose at this stage in our lives to enjoy 10% of our income as a gift to our church. So what does that give? 10% 10% of $170,000 is $17,000. What I then do is I divide the 10% by 17. Now you can see why I chose $170,000. So divide the 10% by 17. That gives, you with me, $1,000. What we then do as a family, we give $1,000 per month to the general church account. Uh, that's 12 lots of 1,000. We also give 1,000 to Pres Aid at Easter, one thousand to Compassion at Christmas, and three lots of one thousand for Mission Sunday during the year. So twelve months plus two charities plus three for three units for mission. That makes seventeen. That, in a nutshell, is our plan. Now, on top of the ten percent, there are other things that we give to. We sponsor a couple of children, give a bit to some missionaries. We also set aside money for church camps, MS Summer School, youth group camps, and one of the Christian camp for our children. As I say, that's what we do. I don't think we're particularly generous. Um, I hope we'll be able to be more generous when the kids grow up. But but the thing is this. I don't think that our plan of giving is unrealistic for most people in our church. I don't think generosity should just be for ministers. I'm not even sure that we are that generous. In fact, uh, we as a family, I suspect, I suspect we have less income and more dependence than most people in this church. I recently discussed giving with another member of our church and his family. Uh, They currently budget to give just over 20% of their pre-tax income away. And they aim, he says, to increase the percentage of their giving each year. He says, and I quote, "Uh, We set a sum for our giving and then we allocate from that amount 50% for church, 25% for social justice ministries, 20% for gospel ministries, 5% for friends in ministry. He says the key is this. He says the key is to stop asking how much can we give and to start asking how much do we really need to keep. Uh, He also recommends a book by Craig Blomberg. It's called Neither Poverty Nor Riches and I'll try to remember to have some copies at church camp for people who want to read it. I don't think that the Reads plan or something like it is unrealistic for you. So let me be brutally blunt. Okay, you ready to be offended? Spend your money how you choose. It's yours to enjoy. But in the light of God's word here, this is my opinion. It's just my opinion, but this is my opinion. If you are the average person at Chatsworth Presbyterian Church, the median giver or something like that, and if you are truly giving only 1% of your income for gospel purposes, then my opinion, based on my own practice, is this. Uh, you should be giving 10 times what you're currently giving. There you go, I've said it. I reckon the average person here at Chatswood ought to be giving 10 times what they are currently giving. Uh, let me be even blunter. If our giving is truly only 1% of our income, then I reckon our current giving shows that the majority of us are faithless, short sighted, and greedy. We are foolishly failing to delay our gratification. We are foolishly splurging our money on stuff that will soon be gone. And we are missing out on the joyful privilege of laying up a firm foundation for the coming age so that we may take hold of the life that is truly life. Sorry to be rude about it, but friends, I believe that this is a massive blind spot for us a blind spot that we will have to give account for on the Day of Judgment. We need to check whether we genuinely believe that there even is a life that is truly life because our wallets are saying that we don't believe it. Okay, let's finish. Here's the big idea. Your money is yours. Enjoy it with thanks to God. But think about this. Think about the wisdom of delaying your gratification Think about the life that is truly life and use your money to generously do good in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your extraordinary and wonderful and magnificent generosity to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that though he was rich, he became poor so that we through his poverty may become rich. We pray, Heavenly Father, you work in us by your spirit. Help us to genuinely believe in Jesus to believe that there is a life that is to come that is truly life. Uh, to believe what your word teaches about the, the, the wisdom of investing in this life. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will change the way we spend our money. That we may be generous and that we may, in fact, lay up a firm foundation for the coming age. That we may take hold of the life that is truly life. We pray it in Jesus' name.